0: Hebrews 11, we're continuing our series in the book of Hebrews, and we're going slower in chapter 11 than we did in the the previous chapters, simply because there's such a lot and you're dealing with many different characters from the Old Testament and learning lessons from their faith. So Hebrews 11, and this morning we're going to look at verse 8 to 16, and the theme for this morning's message is the kind of faith you need the kind of faith you need. Let us ask the help of the Holy Spirit. Our Father, once again, we come to you, to the throne of grace, and we come as creatures who are dependent on you for life, breath, and everything. We humble our hearts before you, Lord, in prayer and also in the confession of our sins as we will partake of the Lord's Supper in a moment and think again of the death of Jesus Christ, but also of the coming of Christ. For as often as we eat this bread and drink the wine, drink the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. And we look forward to that day when you will return, when you will burst through the clouds, when you will rend the heavens and come down, in judgment, in flaming fire, in fury upon your enemies and to rescue your people. We know that the Old Testament teaches us that the day of the Lord is a day not of light but of darkness. But indeed for us who believe in Christ, our redemption draws near. And we look up, we lift up our heads and wait for the coming of our Savior and for the renewing of all things, the regeneration of all things when you will create a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Come quickly, our Lord. Amen. Many people will say that they believe, and they even use those words, I believe in God. They confess that and profess to be believers, but their faith makes no difference whatsoever in their lives. So it's the kind of faith, it's the faith of devils, it's the faith of James 2 verse 19 do you believe that God is one do you you do well even the demons believe or the devils believe and they shudder so that's not a sufficient kind of faith so what is the faith we need what is this kind of faith that we need A, a, a faith that will really really make a difference in the way we live And that's what we find in this passage. Hebrews 11 verse 8 to 12. We're going to look at first and that is operational faith. Let's read verse 8 to 12. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went out to live in the land of promise were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. I shared the gospel with a security guard once and I was shocked at his answer when he told me that he does not believe that God exists. That's not what shocked me. Many people think that way. Uh, I'll get to the part that shocked me soon. But he does not believe that God exists and I use the argument of Romans 1 what about creation that proves there's the creator it's obvious it's visible there's design in creation you can see some powerful being created this some wise being and so on and he denied that and then I said but what about morality Romans 2 what about your conscience where does right and wrong come from and then he said There exists no such thing as right and wrong. And he went on to say, a security guard saying, it is not wrong to steal. It's not wrong to rob. It's not wrong to rape. It's not wrong to sleep around. And then he continued going and he said, it's like nothing to me to kill someone. Wow. It's like nothing to murder someone. And then 2 and 2 made 4, when I said, I I, I understand exactly, I understand exactly that obviously in your worldview there's no right and wrong, because there's no absolute God and there's no absolute lawgiver, there are no absolute laws, there's no absolute right and absolute wrong. He even said, as long as I know the purpose for murdering someone, that's fine. And that's exactly what the, the Western worldview also teaches. People who believe, believe in evolution, they reject Genesis 1-3, to they reject Scripture. So in their minds, it's not wrong to be sexually immoral. It's not wrong to be homosexual. It's not wrong to say that you are transgender. It is not wrong to murder the unborn. But at least these people are consistent. What they believe is how they live and that is what Abraham did just in a positive sense Abraham really believed what God had told him and it was visible in Abraham's life you could see he really believes what God tells him so when God called him for instance according to verse 8 he was called to go out to a place he was to receive an inheritance and verse 8 says he obeyed so he he lived in Mesopotamia in Ur of the Chaldeans uh, that is in south, the southwestern part of uh, modern Iraq, modern-day Iraq. And so when God called him, he obeyed, and he went out. And to miss the Arabian Desert, he didn't want to trek through the desert, right all the way to the Promised Land. And besides, he didn't exactly know where God was calling him to, but he didn't want to go through the desert, so he went along the Euphrates River, the Fertile Strip, that's shaped like a horse hoof all the way from southern Iraq right around to Israel. And so he moved and he came to Haran. Haran is on the border of modern-day Turkey and Syria. And that we find in Genesis 11.31 that says he went to Haran. And I got the other from Acts 7 verse 2 where it says he was in Mesopotamia when God called him and then he moved to Haran. And so he stayed in Haran until his father died and then he continued his trek to the land of Canaan Genesis 11:32 and then the beginning of Genesis 12 so he left his family he left his kinsmen he left his the nation his tribe his people his country and he only took with him his wife Sarai and his nephew Lot and then some slaves that he had purchased in haran and that we find in genesis 12. and as we read in verse 8 it says second party went out not knowing where he was going he didn't know where god's calling him to but he obeyed god now the application for us is not that you should pack up and you should immigrate even though you don't know where you're going to what country just pack and god will show you that's not the application remember Abraham obeyed what God had told him God said you must pack up and move he didn't just move because he felt it's the right thing and thought God is telling him stuff he knew God told him and so the question to us is what is God telling you through his word what is God's calling to you God has called you and is calling you to follow him to heaven do you believe him And if you do, if you say you do believe Him, show your faith by an act of obedience and follow Him and do it every day. If someone wants to be my disciple, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. And so you follow God. You follow Him by faith in His Word and through prayer. And you walk this path with other believers. And if you don't follow Me this way, well, I don't care how much you tell Me that you are following Christ, you are not. Because if you truly believe Him, you will follow Him. If you truly believe what He says about heaven, you will follow Him there. Otherwise you're like someone who says, you know, drinking drinking lots of water and eating fresh vegetables, it helps you to live a healthier lifestyle. You can say that as much as you want if you're the kind of person who only drinks filter coffee and, well, you treat vegetables, fresh vegetables like the coronavirus or like the flu. So if you really believe that, if you really believe what you say, then your actions will correspond. Your deeds will correspond to your faith. So we want to be like Abraham. Abraham's faith was visible. It was visible through act of obedience, like in verse 8. He obeyed God when God spoke. By faith he obeyed. James 2 verse 22 teaches the same kind of thing. So although he had not yet received the promised land, even while he was living there, with Isaac, uh, his son, and with his grandson Jacob, and they lived as Strangers, as pilgrims, as sojourners in a foreign land, verse 9, went to live in a land of promises in a foreign land, living in tents, so moving around uh, from place to place, verse 9 tells us. And yet, while that was going on, while they were moving around from place to place, they believed God's promise. They believed God will give the land to their descendants. And even that promise was reinforced to Isaac and Jacob. It says at the end of verse 9, heirs with him of the same promise, because God reinforced that to them in the book of Genesis, saying to Isaac, you will inherit the land, your descendants will inherit the land. And to Jacob, the same thing. But, even though God had promised the land, they did not merely look to the land as the great promise. They looked further. They they expected a heavenly city, a city with foundations, a city that is steadfast, not moving, not a city that, that's like a tent that you have to break down and move. Verse ten He was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Now when would Abraham when would Abraham go to this city? Well according to um, the old testament
1: and the new testament it wasn't only
0: when abraham died now abraham had heard of the city obviously from god otherwise he would never have known about the city god revealed it to him and told him about this heavenly city and he believed god and he he longed for and yearned for and desired to live in the city with god and when he would be there well not after the death of Jesus. Some people believe that. They believe that the Old Testament saints, Old Testament believers, only went to heaven after Christ died. Uh, like one preacher I heard one day, many years ago. Must have been around 2000, and, uh, oh, wow, 2004, or 2003, or something of the sort. No, even before that. Must have been earlier. Never mind. Uh, so this preacher said that. The Old Testament believers, they were locked up in kind of a prison, in, a, in the spirit world. And, and when Jesus uh, died on the cross, when he said, it is finished, they went into hell and he unlocked their prison doors and set them free and then they went to heaven. Oh, that's not biblical. And then someone else, when I started my ministry in Kempton Park, someone else said, no, When Old Testament believers died, they went to paradise. They didn't go to heaven. Paradise is something different. It's kind of a waiting room, kind of a limbo. Uh, Yes, it's pleasant, but it's not heaven. Well, first of all, I need to answer that and say that New Testament believers go to paradise when they die. So nothing changed after the death of Christ in that sense, because Jesus said to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. And Jesus died before he did. Meaning it's New Testament then. And then in Revelation 2, verse 7, it says those who, who conquer two New Testament Christians, they will have part of the tree of the life, tree of life which is in the paradise of God. And according to the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 2, or 2 Corinthians 12, verse 2 and 3, Paul equates paradise and heaven. Paradise to heaven, it's the same place, it's just different, different terms for the same name. So And even Paul said, as a New Testament believer... He had a vision, he went to paradise. And then he reinforces it. Actually, the previous verse, he says he was taken up to the third heaven, and then he says he went to paradise. It's the same place. And then secondly, we know from the Old Testament that Abraham, when he died, went to heaven. Didn't go to some prison. It says in Genesis 25, verse 8 and 9, verse 8 says, That when Abraham died, he was gathered to his people. And in case you think that means, oh, he was put in the grave like the rest of his forefathers. That's not what it means. He was gathered to his people. And only then, later on in the next verse, is he buried. The same with Jacob. When Jacob dies, it says he's gathered to his people. And only more than 70 days later, he's buried. So being gathered to your people in the Old Testament means going to heaven. And then finally... We see in different verses of Scripture that when Old Testament believers left this earth, they went to heaven. Enoch didn't die. Verse 5, God took him. Genesis chapter 5, verse 24 also, says Enoch was taken by God. Where did he go? Did he go to some prison? Did he go to some paradise? But it's not heaven. What about 2 Kings chapter 2 verse 11? Elijah didn't die. Where did he go? It says he was taken up in a whirlwind to heaven. David knew that when he dies, he will see God. He says so in, in Psalm 17 verse 15. He says, he speaks of, of death as falling asleep. And then he says, when I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. For he will see God. If he goes to the valley of the shadow of death, he will fear no evil, for the Lord is with him, his rod and staff comforts him. And then he goes through this valley, and then he gets to verse 6, where he says, Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. He knew that. Jesus said, he spoke of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob sitting at a feast in heaven, and said that those who trust in Christ, those who follow Christ, they will be at that feast. Jesus said that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they are not dead. They are alive. They are alive, living with God. Matthew 22, verse 31 and 32. God is not the God of the dead. He is the God of the living. And so they are still alive. They are in heaven. And remember that God said that. uh, Jesus said those things before he was crucified. In Luke chapter 9, verse 30 and 31, we read of Moses and Elijah appearing to Jesus in glory. And what that means is simply they appeared in heavenly glory. Where did they come from? They came from heavenly glory, and they appeared to Christ on earth. Jesus speaks in Luke 16, verse 22 and 25, about a man dying, a man called Lazarus. And this man goes, and he's with Abraham in a place of happiness, in a place of comfort, in a place of peace. And all those passages are before the cross of Jesus Christ. All right, so now the question then, if Old Testament believers immediately went to heaven when they died, what in the world, what difference did the cross of Jesus make? What difference did the resurrection of Jesus make? Well, the difference it made was to show them why they are in heaven, to show them how they got there. They got there because the Messiah would come and the Messiah would die for their sins. Now they knew, oh, this is why, because Jesus died for my sins. The Messiah, the Lamb of God, who was to come, would pay for my sins. And so the death of Jesus then gives, gave them entrance into the new Jerusalem, the city. The city, it gives us entrance into this heavenly city. The city of which we read in verse 10 at the end, whose designer and builder is God. God is the architect. God is the builder of the city also. What must this city look like? If God himself is the architect, if God himself is the builder of the city. Well, we we get an idea in Revelation 21, where the majesty and the glory and the beauty of the city is described. God started building the city before the creation. Jesus said in Matthew 25, 34, he speaks on judgment day and he says to his people, the sheep on his right hand side, come into The kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the earth. And God is busy completing this because Jesus said he's going to prepare a place for us. Now I'd like to say more on this topic, but I'm not going to. I'm going to hold back a little because under under the next point I will elaborate on this teaching, on this doctrine. Alright, so next we read of Sarah in verse 11. Uh, Sarah was barren. She was infertile she couldn't have children genesis 11 verse 30 tells us and so then she tells abraham sleep with my slave sleep with hagar and hagar will have children on my behalf genesis 16 and so abraham does that and it's a big mistake Uh, and nevertheless let me cut the detail and, and jump to the conclusion so when sarah's 89 years old the Lord tells her, next year this time, when you're 90 years old, you're going to have a son. And she laughs. She laughs because, I mean, she no longer has her period. She, she, there's no eggs that can be fertilized. Um, and she has no desire for pleasure. She has no desire for sex. Uh, Genesis 18, verse 10 to 12, you read it there. But somewhere, somewhere along the line and along the way, she comes to her senses and she leaves her doubts behind and she believes God's promise. And she doesn't believe it in her head only, in her mind only, because she, she lies with her husband. She lies with Abraham. She sleeps with him. And she believes that I will fall pregnant, even though I have no desire for pleasure anymore. I'm going to do this. I will fall pregnant. God has promised this. and the promise is fulfilled. Verse 11, By faith Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past age, since she considered him faithful, who promised. So even though she's infertile, even though she she can't have children, even though her husband's 100 years old, he's like a dead man when it comes to getting children. Dead people can't have children, and Abraham basically, well, he couldn't have children. Verse 12, therefore from one man and him as good as dead. And because they believed the promise, it says, they had descendants as many of the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. So they had children. And they had many children, many descendants. This man and woman who couldn't have children. And because they believed God honored their faith, and gave them children according to the number, de- number described in verse 12. So now, are you one of those children? Are you one of Abraham and Sarah's children? Don't jump to a conclusion to say, Of course I am. I was baptized as a baby. I'm a covenant child. You're not a covenant child automatically just because you were baptized as a baby. And you're not. Abraham and Sarah's children simply because you were baptized as an adult. And you're not automatically Abraham and Sarah's children simply because perhaps somewhere in the line of your forefathers there's a Jew. The true children of Abraham are only those who believe in Jesus. Whether you're a Jew or not, whether your parents were believers or not. Jesus said to the Jews, you are not children of Abraham because you would then do what Abraham did and now you seek to kill me. You are children of your father the devil. Not all who are of Abraham or all who are of Israel are Israel. You're not an Israelite simply because you've got Jewish blood. You're not a true Jew simply because you've got Jewish forebears. Galatians 3 clearly tells us that those who believe are children of Abraham. The blessing of Abraham comes to the Gentiles through Christ. Christ is the offspring of Abraham, Galatians 3.16. Now, perhaps it doesn't even bother you, this question. You think, who cares whether I'm a child of Abraham or not? Well, you should understand this. The blessing of God only comes... To the children of Abraham. In you Abraham. Will all the families of the earth. Be blessed. And only in Abraham. If you have Abraham's child. Will you receive the inheritance of heaven. Galatians 3.29. And that obviously comes through Christ alone. Because he's the offspring
1: of Abraham. So again I ask you the question. Are you a child of Abraham? Number two,
0: future-focused faith. Future-focused faith. So the first was operational faith, meaning that your faith goes into action, you live what you believe, and second then, future-focused faith in verse 13 to 16. Let us read. These all, meaning the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Sarah, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, How many people in the modern church really look forward to going to heaven? I don't hear many sermons on this. I don't hear many people talking this way in their day-to-day conversations with other believers. I don't hear this very often in the prayers of Christians. You just go to your local Christian bookstore, the popular one in the mall, and you look and see what what are the top 10 best-selling books in that bookstore. The top 10 sellers in Christian bookstores is all about how you can improve your life here and now. It's not about heaven. It's not about the next life, unless, of course, it's some some sensational thing about a boy dying and going to heaven. I'll say something about that later on. But that's not how the patriarchs were, how Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were, how Sarah was. Their faith was future-focused. So even when they were on their deathbeds, while they were lying on their deathbeds, they knew of this promise that God had said He'll give them many descendants, that God had said He's going to give them the promised land. And we see this in verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having greeted them from afar, as if standing at a distance, seeing, yes, I know in the future God's going to give this land to my descendants and God's going to give us many descendants. So, so they, they thought that way and viewed life that way, but they looked further than the promised land, further than many descendants just in this world and people from the Jewish race or, or Israelites. End of verse 13, having acknowledged they were strangers and exiles on the earth. So they knew there's something more. We're strangers here. This is not our home. They knew, verse 10, Abraham was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And so they really looked at this life just as, oh, we're just passing through. They looked at this life as, oh, we're pilgrims. This is not really our house. We are strangers and pilgrims. We are aliens. We are exiles in this world. Verse 13, end. End of verse 13. And we, we ought to look at ourselves that way and see ourselves that way as Christians. We should see we are just pilgrims. We're just passing through. This world is not really the place we're going we're gonna to be forever. Obviously, Jesus is going to create this world and, and recreate it, and we will be here. But, but the world as it is is not our home. We are citizens of heaven, Philippians 3, verse 20. We are pilgrims. We are exiles. We are strangers. We are sojourners. 1 Peter 1, verse 1, and verse 17, and 2, verse 11. Is that part of your thoughts? Is heaven part of your thoughts? Is heaven part of your prayers? Is heaven part of your desire and your longing and your yearning? Well, then if it is, show that. Show it in the way you live. Show it in the way you spend your money and spend your time and spend your energy. Are you gathering for yourself, even in the way you use your money, are you gathering for yourself treasures in heaven? Or have your roots gone so deep you're really stuck in this world? You're stuck here because you, you're clinging to this world and holding on to this world and this life and the treasures of this world. You, almost like you're looking for the perfect country on earth. You just want to immigrate because of all the problems in South Africa. And you think you're going to find some perfect country in this world. Have you forgotten? That, that heaven is your real home? I heard a story long ago, just to illustrate this, and I checked on the internet, and I can't verify the story. Perhaps it's just a good illustration. And none of the websites, many websites share the story, and some tweak the details. But no one gives me the primary source. Nevertheless, the illustration works, so it's about a guy called Henry Morrison, he was a missionary apparently, him and his wife were 40 years in some African country, and then, then after 40 years they returned to the, to the United States, and on the same ship with them is the President of the US, Theodore Roosevelt at that time, and when the President, when the ship comes to New York Harbor, there's fanfare, there's the red carpet, there's the, uh, the Navy awaiting them, and All the sailors and generals and important people and there's a band playing and thousands of spectators, people from the public waiting for the president to arrive home after some hunting trip in Africa or whatever it was. And then everyone has to wait for the president to get off the ship. And this missionary is really discouraged. He says, you know, the president's away from from his country for some months gets home and all of this this fanfare and people welcoming him home and you and i my wife we spent 40 years we give our lives in god's service we arrive home and there's not a single person to welcome us home and his wife responds and says yes but you must remember darling we're not home yet and that's exactly the way the patriarchs were the patriarchs didn't look and just see the promised land they look Further, they were seeking a homeland, a heavenly homeland, verse 14. People who speak thus, meaning people who say we're just exiles in this world, they make it clear they are seeking a homeland. They're looking for a heavenly country. And they don't seek for it like like people would seek for some lost city, uh, the lost city under the ocean called Atlantis or King Solomon's Mines or something of the sort. No, they're seeking God himself. Because God will lead them to that city. Now how do you know? How do you know heaven's a real place? How do you know it's true? Everything the Bible says about heaven. Do we know it's true because some people have said, Oh, I've died, I've been to heaven, I came back. Or I had some vision of heaven, I was there for 45 minutes or 90 minutes in heaven. And I wrote a popular book and my books are selling. And people want me to speak at their churches and uh, whatever. No, we don't, we don't base our theology of heaven on people's experiences. We base our theology on heaven, on Scripture. We base our theology on heaven because of the testimony of Jesus Christ. Jesus came from heaven, and he told us about it. And God also gave this privilege to the Apostle Paul and the Apostle John to see heaven. While they were still in this world, they saw heaven, they went to heaven, and had visions of heaven. And they came back and told us. And their Holy Spirit inspired them to record it in Scripture. 2 Corinthians 12:2 and 3 in the book of Revelation. Now some people might say, but they're lying. They're mad. They're crazy. Well, just look at the life of John and Paul. Read their writings and study their characters. They're not, they don't have the character traits of people who are liars. They do not have the character traits of people who are crazy. So the only option left, and, and what even to speak of Jesus, just study his life. Read the four Gospels. Jesus doesn't have the traits of a liar. He doesn't have the traits of, of a crazy person. So the only option you have left is to believe what he said and what they said about heaven and what the Bible teaches. But even that, that in itself is not, it's not enough. It's not enough to simply believe there's a place called heaven.
1: The question is, are you going there?
0: And of course, most people think they are. Especially at funerals. They think, oh yes, you're a Christian. Doesn't matter what your life looked like. And if you hated God, when people die, suddenly everyone is a Christian.
1: And they're going to heaven. So we
0: need to ask ourselves the question, are you going there? Are you really going there? And to find the path, to find the way to heaven, you must find Christ. Because Christ is the way. He is the way to the Father, and He will lead you there. Jesus said so in John 14. And so it is Christ, it's with Him that the patriarchs wanted to be. Abraham wanted to be with Christ. And the patriarchs, Isaac and Jacob, wanted to be with Christ. They didn't care about the homeland they had left. They didn't care about southern Iraq. They didn't care about Ur of the Chaldeans. They didn't care about Haran. If they had, they would have returned. They wanted a heavenly homeland. Verse 15. If they'd been thinking of that land from which they'd gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. That is not what they were thinking about. End of verse 14. They are seeking a homeland, not the land of their forefathers, a land where they will go, heaven, the heavenly city, and every true believer understands that. There's a yearning in your heart. There's a desire in your heart. You cannot explain it to people. It's not not a desire for an earthly paradise or for a land of milk and honey or for some utopia or some exotic island. There's something more. There's a desire for a heavenly country, a heavenly homeland. And when you get there,
1: the moment you see it, you will
0: understand, I've always belonged here. I've always belonged here. It'll feel to you as if, you know, I've seen this before. It's like I had foretastes of this. Sometimes, while I was still on earth, there were four tastes. You'll think, deja vu, I remember this. I've seen this kind of thing before. But but the experience I had of this, it was shadowy.
1: You'll feel like someone
0: like like someone who's, yes, I've seen pictures of the I've seen pictures of this food on the menu at the restaurant, but now is the very first time I taste the food. And that's what the patriarchs were like. They, they believe that it will be so much better to rejoice in the heavenly homeland and to really experience it and sit down at the table and eat at the feast than merely see the photos of and the pictures of this meal on the menu. And so in other words, what I'm trying to tell you is, is they didn't merely want the promised land. Those are only the pictures on the menu. They wanted heaven itself. They wanted God himself. They wanted the feast itself. Verse 16. As it is, they desire a better country, a heavenly one. Do you long for this? Do you desire this? Do you desire a life without sin and a life with Christ or will it be sufficient? Will it be enough for you if you can have Jesus' gifts without having Him? So you've got a world with no sickness, no suffering, no death, a world where there's love and joy and peace. So you've got all the benefits, but you're fine with that. You're fine if you simply have that even though you do not have Christ. So I'm asking you, is it, to, does it, is it about Jesus for you? Is it about Jesus Or do you just want the benefits? And if you really want Jesus, well then he will say of you what he said of the patriarchs. End of verse 16. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God. He will say of you, I'm not ashamed. He wasn't ashamed to be called their God. He wasn't ashamed to be called the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. He was proud of being called that. And can God with pride say of you the same thing not not because you're perfect
1: but because you believe in Him
0: your faith in Him and your desire for Him is real can he say with with pride I'm not ashamed of being called your God I'm not ashamed of being called the God of Yarpi and Melvin and Ansi and Lizelle and Rulf and Charda and Timothy and Anna, and Gideon, and Peter, and Babs, I'm not ashamed of being called your God. You loved me. You
1: hated sin. You had a desire to be with me. And so I'm not ashamed of you. I've prepared for you a city
0: because I want you to be where I am. End of verse 16. He's not ashamed to be called their God for He has prepared for them a city. Or, Or, on the other hand, will God say, I'm ashamed of you. You said that I'm your God. But there was no difference between your life and the life of an unbeliever. You are certainly not one of mine. Depart from me. Go away from me. I never knew you. So please don't, do not make the, the mistake. Don't make the error of thinking when I said that, of thinking, oh, so all I should do is I should live a good life and I'll go to heaven. No. It is by faith in Christ that you go to heaven. It is Christ who takes you to heaven and brings you there by faith in Him. But if your faith is real, then it will become visible in a life of obedience. It's almost like, uh, describing it this way, it's almost like saying a car a motor car does not become a ferrari it doesn't become a ferrari simply because you bought the sticker at the indian shop or the chinese shop uh, of a prancing black horse with a yellow background and stuck it to your front fender and now your car's a ferrari it's not a ferrari and yet that emblem that prancing horse with a yellow background will be on the front fender of every ferrari so to draw the illustration to a conclusion. Are you the real McCoy? Are you the real deal? And you have the emblem of operational faith, of future focused faith, to show you are really a Christian. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I do pray that these words that I have preached and the words I have spoken and the words I have expounded and applied and read that it would strike home
1: drive it home ram it into the souls of your people and of any who are not yet saved draw them to your son Give them faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And help us
0: then to have an operational faith and a future-focused faith, an obedient faith, a faith looking toward heaven and that our lives would be, that that faith would be visible in our lives and honor your great name, now and forever.
1: Amen.